Hi, I'm Alex Merrill. Welcome to the Inspirati. I've enlisted a roster of ultra-talented international creators and curators to join me on this podcast to talk about how they've charted their individual paths, overcome challenges, and found their true artistic selves. From candid conversations with eminent makers to showcasing exciting up-and-comers across the industries of art, music, fashion, entertainment, literature, and design, we get to illuminate our perspectives, learning from these unique stars within the constellation of global creativity. The Inspirati was created for those seeking inspiration and those seeking to inspire. Thanks for listening. A passage from the novel I recommend the most. For his part, the Count had opted for the life of the purposefully unrushed. Not only was he disinclined to race towards some appointed hour, disdaining to even wear a watch, he took the greatest satisfaction when assuring a friend that a worldly matter could wait in favor of a leisurely lunch or a stroll along the embankment. After all, did not wine improve with age? Was it not the passage of years that gave a piece of furniture its delightful patina? When all was said and done, the endeavors that most modern men saw as urgent, such as appointments with bankers and the catching of trains, probably could have waited, while those they deemed frivolous, such as cups of tea and friendly chats, had deserved their immediate attention. There are books you can't be bothered to finish. There are those that offer a chuckle or two only to be forgotten immediately. And then there are the rare ones that work their way inside you, sparkling amongst the accumulated artistic influences that have formed the way you see the world. These books will delight you. They will break your heart with their beauty and truth. Their sentences will alter the way you think. Their characters will never leave you. It is for this reason that two summers ago at a book party I was DJing in Manhattan, I committed the ultimate faux pas and asked a guest for a photograph together. In my defense, that guest was Amor Tolls, one of my favorite novelists, an incomparable wordsmith, a literary legend. Amor's second novel, A Gentleman in Moscow, which I just quoted from, spent 104 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. His breakthrough debut, Rules of Civility, is also a Times bestseller, and together the two books have been translated into more than 30 languages, selling more than 3 million copies to date. This doesn't surprise me. Amor's writing is elegant and soul-stirring. It leaves you feeling more engaged, more aware of life's expansiveness. Our conversation was a reminder that returning to the creative boundlessness of our youth can happen whenever we choose, that following our curiosities can lead to greatness, and that exceptional literature can be written with the audience in mind. Amor's third novel, The Lincoln Highway, comes out on October 5th. Don't forget to pre-order it. And in the meantime, please enjoy our chat. Hi. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Good. Good. I feel like before we even get started, I owe you a bit of an apology. In 13 years of DJing parties, you're the only person I've ever <laughs> harassed for a photograph. So thank you for being so gracious about my fangirling. I was not I was not in the least offended. You, you, <laughs> were, you were very gracious about the whole thing. And it was a it was a it was a pleasant surprise. Oh, good, good. I'm glad to hear it. I know I told you this when we met, but A Gentleman in Moscow is my number one book recommendation. In addition to being one of the most beautiful pieces of writing I've read, it's so life affirming and such an example of 
the ability of perspective to triumph over circumstance that I feel like it should be required reading for everybody. So <laughs> thank you for that book, especially right now. You're welcome. Where are you right now? Uh, we're back in New York City. We have a house an hour outside the city in Garrison, New York. Okay. So when, uh, and we have two teenagers. So mid-March, whatever, last year when the schools closed, we retreated to Garrison. We were there for a number of months. And, but in the fall, my, my daughter was back at halftime and now she's back full-time in schools. So, okay. So, you know, we've been here uh, for a large, a lot of the last nine months we've been in Manhattan. Well, it's nice that you could get out of the city for the craziest part. It was awesome. Yeah. I mean, and a great luxury, obviously, given what the country was going through. But, but it was just awesome for my wife and, uh, and me because we had not experienced spring since we were 25 years old or something. Wow. You know? When you live in Manhattan, you, you you spring lasts about 24 hours. Yeah. Magnolia in Union Square blooms and then it's over. Exactly, exactly. So so you know, to be we we have had this house for years, but we've never, you know, we've never been there for 10 days in a row. And so suddenly we were there from winter right through spring into summer. And it was, you know, it was such a gift to us to witness that and to kind of to relive what what the seasons were like as children and then to, to do it with our kids too. How far out of the city is it? It's an hour. It's right by, okay. it's across the Hudson River from the military school, West Point. Okay. It's crazy that it's that big of a difference seasonally. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, just in terms of from our house, you cannot see another building in spring. Right. And there's a lake nearby. So so you just, it's it's the, the dynamic of every day in spring, you see a different tree bloom, you know, and then, the, and then you kind of you go through that and then the flowers start to come and the birds return and, you know, you get the whole, every day it's a different world in the way that that genuine spring is how was it to check out of city life to finish your book because that was right around that time right it was helpful it was helpful (laughs) it was not not a problem it was it allowed me to 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 finish on on schedule i might have you know in manhattan i might have had to push back uh the deadline right what is the what does that setup look like for you in the city versus the out of town place? Do you have like a specific kind of way of setting up a creative space for yourself? This this is I'm sitting in a library mm-hmm. in, in our townhouse in Manhattan. Okay, out in Garrison, I, I have a similar space. I mean, you know, it's not quite as 19th century looking, but but right. it's a you know a retreat with books in it that I can disappear for hours at a time. Nice. So your first two books, Rules of Civility and A Gentleman in Moscow, are New York Times bestsellers. Gentlemen spent 104 weeks on the list, and together they've been translated into 30 languages, sold millions of copies. But my favorite part of all of this is that you used to work in investing for over 20 years. What was that jump like? That's your favorite part? That's my fit. Well, what I love, because I was always that person who I would like talk to someone in finance at a party in New York and be like, but what do you really want to do? Like, I was convinced there was like a closeted creative in everyone. But in your case, like, holy smokes, what if you'd never let him out? <laughs> I, you know, uh, so it's, it's, there's, a, there's some easy misconceptions around it, not on your part, but just in, in, you know, from observers in that I, I began writing fiction as a kid and I wrote it in high school. I wrote it in college. I wrote it in graduate school. Okay. So when I arrived in New York city at the age of 25, it was really my intention to, uh, to write novels. It's really kind of all I ever really wanted to do. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I studied literature both as an undergraduate and a graduate student in support of my fiction writing. Mm-hmm. But then when I got to New York, you know, you, you know how this is personally, I was kind of in my illegal sublet in the East Village, you know, alone during the day and, uh, and, you know, and 
and I just it, it felt it felt too secluded. Mm-hmm. I had uh, a little bit of the you know the emotional pressure of how I was going to make a living. There was a practical yeah. aspect to it, and a but emotional one from my me and my father. You know, like what are you right. doing? Right. I got a job anymore. You know. But but I, you know what? Even as I was getting that encouragement from my father, I was not feeling uh, as a young person just arrived in New York City in the East Village. I was not you know loving my life being at a desk already. Mm. Um, so a friend of mine had started an investment firm. We became friends. He had started an investment firm. We became friends. Uh, he was working alone, so I joined him. And twenty years later, we were still working side by side. Wow. And that you know. There's more than 100 employees in that firm now, and uh, you know, and that was a lot of fun. It still is for them. We had a research-intensive process towards investing globally, and and so uh, you know we, we were just constantly learning. It was very bright people, uh, you know, pursuing intelligence at all times. That's what we mm-hmm. were doing. You know? And then you're you're trying to invest for your clients in a way that's prudent, and the clients were great. So it was a lot of fun. But around the time, and so I did not write fiction for the first 10 years that I was working there, and then in my mid 30s, I was like, I better go back to writing fiction. Because if, if I wake up in my 50s, having never returned to writing, I will really be, you know, bitter and a drinker. You know, yeah, not going to end well for me, my marriage, my kids. <laughs> so, uh, so then you know, so I, I, I from in my mid 30s, I started a novel, I spent working on it for seven years. And when I finished it, I didn't like it. So I set that aside and, and thought about uh, what went wrong in that work? Because I'd never written, I'd written many, 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 many short stories. I'd never written a novel. So, so there was a learning curve that needed to be overcome. But certain things I learned from that process, I, I used to kind of go and do a new book. And that was a responsibility. Mm-hmm. And that did meet my own standards when I was finished. And so when that became a bestseller, I retired from my firm. And they continue on and, uh, and having a great time. And then I, so I started Gentleman Moscow as a full-time writer in, you know, this room. Okay. It was kind of, you know, I, I don't, as I say, there's misconceptions in the sense that like you know, people, some people are like, did you start writing the day you quit? It's like, what? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> You're like, life doesn't work that way. Yeah, it doesn't work. You got to learn some stuff. And, you know, it's, like, it's a craft, you know, and so you, it does require, uh, you got to hone that craft over time by doing elements of the craft over and over and over, you know, like any other, like being a musician or a tennis player. You know, at a high level, yeah. you have to master the craft. Um, so, so it wasn't walk out and start. The other thing is like the other misconception is people are like, yeah, that was so brave of you. And I'm like, no, you're not listening. I had a job. <laughs> the book became a bestseller and then I retired. You know, right. I mean, it wasn't like putting my entire family, you know, and my future at risk when I walked out the door of my firm. You know, on the contrary, it was sort of cowardly, I suppose. But but yeah, so so that's kind of the way it went. But, well, it's it's brave to put work out, especially if you've spent seven years on a book that you ended up not liking. Yeah. Which is kind of a relief. If you just written Rules of Civility straight out of the gate, I feel like that wouldn't have been fair. That's true. That would not be fair. <laughs> and, and, the, and the, the other book, you know, I shared with two people and I was like, oof, this is, you know, and I, and I was uncomfortable even sharing it, you know, and so that just went, went into, the, into the deep drawer. But yes, so my particular path, which isn't unique, mm-hmm. you know, there are novelists out there who start in their 40s or, you know, or get published in their 40s or whatever, the, the contemporary novelists is great acclaim or their late 30s or whatever. There are others who, you know, at the age of 20 are in the racket, you know. But uh, for me, you know, the, the, the plus is that by the time I sat down to write Rules of Civility, I really had no constraints, uh, you know, in the mm. sense that, and I mean that in the artistic sense, because I, most of my friends at that point in New York didn't know that I wrote fiction at all. Okay. They, they, they were not there with me at grad school and college and as a kid. Right. And, you know, maybe, and I, I kept the, the seven-year project quiet, you know, so they didn't know. My peers who were, you know, good writers didn't know. 
Uh, I didn't do it for the money. Mm -hmm. I didn't do it to impress my peers, to beat the competition, to you know put a roof over the head of my wife and children. You know, it was just I got to do it explicitly for myself, and that's then you you're, that frees you up from asking you know from uh, compromising the work in any way. You know, yeah. you can follow your instincts and what you enjoy as an artist. So that was good. The negative is, of course, is that when Rules of Civility came out, I was kind of, I don't know, five novels behind, you know, of what I would, you know, if I had, if I had, you know, as a young person been bold and taken the risk and started writing and then I was successful enough that I could, you know, continue to survive and thrive and have a family, I would have written, you know, like Colson White, you know, I can't, I don't know, I don't know how many books he's written now, but, you know, tons, you know. Mm -hmm. he's very prolific and he's and they're all great you know so uh but so yeah so that's that's the trade-off right i get some benefits but but you, you pay a certain price i mean you you also you know if you'd started super young there are different difficulties that arise with that whether it's forming a voice that is very youth oriented and then trying to mature in your writing process there's so many other issues that can come about yes. by starting early yes no you're absolutely right and i you know i've, I've met Writers of, of very talented writers, you know, uh, you know, of national reputation, you know, who said who have who bemoaned the fact that their first book was a success, you know, don't, mm. you know, what I mean? but but because they were so young when it happened, because mm -hmm. if you are 25 and you have that level of success, you know, and you're suddenly in the public eye and you have money you never had before, and your sense of what you're capable of is is, is changing rapidly, and your anxiety about can you do it again is affecting you, you know, all these things start to to and I, you know, as as a someone in my forties with two young children, you know, who never took me seriously at all. <laughs> you know, you, you don't have, you don't have that experience. And that, that whole self-consciousness. Yeah. 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 A lot of people said that when rules of civility was done, I was starting a new book. They're like, are you worried about it? And I'm like, I don't know. You know, I don't really think about it. I'm just going to go do the next thing. You know, that's, that's what I'm you know, focused on. And, but I, I don't, at that stage in life, you're not measuring it against some kind of sequence of events or whatever. Right. So let's talk about what, starting to write was like you grew up outside of Boston that's right I grew up in a suburb of Boston did your family read a lot I you know it wasn't like I grew up in a in a household full of writers and readers I mean my, my parents were you know we had we had we had a house with a room lined with books okay you know my father had studied literature and history in college you know my mother was a college educated woman and you know and I think may have measured English as well and so um but but even though that's true, they probably did the vast majority of their reading before the time they had their first kid, like for many people, you know, like, so the age, between the age of, you know, 20 and 30, they read a ton. And then between the age of 30 and 60, they read very little, you know, when you really, really mounted up, you know, but, but so, but yeah, I read, I, I grew up in a house of people who were, who were educated in literature, even though it wasn't their, their bread and butter or, 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 or what they were really focusing on day to day. What books did you love growing up? You know, I mean, I'll, I'll, you know, kind of go back to your anticipate some aspect of your previous question because it's tied to this. I, I decided uh, to become a writer or I had the ambition of being a writer, I should say, uh, mm. in first grade. Wow. I remember that very vividly because uh, my first grade teacher had a poet. I think he must have been in his 60s. Come to the class. She knew him. He was well known in the region as a writer of poetry for the young. And um so he read his poems and, you know, we could buy his books, you know, at the end of, at the end of class or whatever. And, uh, at the end of the day. And, um, and I just remember, you know, being like, this is the coolest thing. It just it really, it really resonated with me, every aspect of it. And I, you know, bought his books and I went home and, and, and I mean like night one, night two, I began writing poetry that was like his, you know, trying to copy his style or his, his whimsy or you know, whatever. 
And that was just it. You know, from that moment forward, it was kind of like read, write, read, write, read, write. You would you'd read something and take it in and be enriched by it or fascinated by it or, or jealous of it. And then, you know, start writing something on the, on the side uh, in response. So as I say, yeah, so I was, I was actively writing stories in high school and writing poetry in high school and some essay type stuff in high school. Um, and it just kept building on itself. But what I read as a young person, it was not that different than most people. You know, I, I, I you know, the Hardy Boys was kind of my first yeah. series I read where I was reading a book a day kind of thing with great absorption. And, uh, you know, but eventually, you know, I got interested in Agatha Christie and the James Bond books by Ian Fleming. And so it wasn't like I was, it wasn't like I was reading, you know, Tolstoy as a, as a 12 year old. I wasn't, right. I wasn't precocious in that way, you know, um, but each shirt and I oh, Ray Bradbury, science fiction writer, you know, so kind of going, having gone through kind of the Hardy Boys, you know, that was kind of a step up the curve age wise, you know, as a teen. Mm-hmm you know, a young teenager kind of discovering the um, sort of the theoretical uh, landscape of science fiction and, and how it could pose moral problems and conundrums and riddles and, you know, and, and games. And, you know, so that was kind of exciting. And then you, as I say, the mystery stuff, you know, you read and that affects you in a different way, suspense affects you in a different way. And then, and then of course, in high school, then I'm being required to read books of substance. And then you start to be influenced by, by deeper and bigger forces. And you were already a journalist at that point before you were even a teenager, right? This is way out of proportion, way out of proportion. <laughs> In the summer community, I, I would, my family would go to, there was a newspaper mm-hmm. and there was kind of the, it's an island, it's Martha's Vineyard Island. And the, the, the local newspaper would have a column for each town. And the person who had written the column for, which is really, I guess, a gossip column, right. more or less. And the person who had written the column in my town quit or, you know, retired after many years and uh, they had nobody. And I think they, they posted a thing saying, if anybody's interested in doing this, please call, you know, call us. And, and the mother of a friend of mine was like, Amory, you should do that. And I was 12. So I called and they gave me the job. And so uh, the summer of my, when I was 12, I was cranking out these silly little articles. And then in high school, I, I, I was an editor with the newspaper. And, but that was kind of the end of my journalistic life. I did not pursue journalism after school or anything like that. But you created this fictional character, right? That's true. And how did like how did that come out of your twelve year old imagination? Yeah, that's very straightforward. Because having said that, the column was kind of gossip. You know, who was arriving? Uh, what was it? You know, what happened at the yacht club race or whatever? They, they <laughs> out of sheer boredom, I invented a, a a wealthy person who had come to the community and was you know living kind of a, an elaborate life, as if it was real. You know, and you know, and I, and kind of the gag was, which I kind of cooked up with a buddy of mine was that, you know, he, he would throw these enormous parties and we loved that, you know, our, our, our dream was the notion of our parents' friends being insulted that they hadn't been invited, you know, and, <laughs> no, and, and we had his house kind of sort of a wooded area, a dirt road that goes down a wooded area where, you know, wines and there's, the addresses are, so we had the house down there. So, cause there were often people down there that nobody knew who exactly who they were. So anyway, so yeah, it was, it was, it was invention as a, as a form of survival, I guess, you know, cause to, <laughs> to make the job more interesting than it was. Stir the pot a little in the community. Yeah. <laughs> so then you went to Yale. Yep. That was next. And then you uh, studied writing there in, in addition to Stanford for your MA? Yep, exactly. I got a master's in English at Stanford, and I, and I wrote fiction at both places, which in both places was you know, seminar-based. You, know, you would apply for a seminar and often with visiting authors and that kind of thing. So they were you know, terrific people. Uh, you know, both the writers and the, and the visiting authors were, you know, many, in some cases very accomplished. And so that was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. So that was a positive experience for exploring your creativity. Yeah. 
So I read your first book, Rules of Civility, while I was living in Greenwich Village, and it opens right there in the 1930s at a jazz bar on New Year's Eve. I think they even walk through Washington Square Park, don't they? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. That was like a block from where I lived, and it was so cool reading it in that neighborhood. How old were you at the time? Still may ask. I was 20, like late 20s. Yeah, and just, I mean, Katie's probably 25 and, and Tigger's 27 or something. So, right. Exactly. Not far yeah. Off, not far. Well, and it's funny now that I'm not there. Like, I look back at the time reading that book with a kind of nostalgia as well. So, there's like, <laughs> there's, there's parallel storylines and a lot of that. How did that story develop as your first novel? How was that kind of compared to the first thing that you were working on? And had that idea and that time period kind of been brewing in you for a while? Yes, I mean, that opens, opens the door to a lot of, of things we're talking about. So, but but uh, first thing I'd say is, 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 let me say this, I, I'm not a person who, who picks a topic, researches it, and then writes a book. I'm a person who writes about things I'm already interested in. Right. So, you know, Rules of Civility is New York in the 1938, and John Moscow is in Russia in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. And, and I, I did no research for writing either of those books. And I really avoid doing research as a part of, of, of launching a creative effort. Mm. But, but in both cases, I had a long, I had, you know, decades of interest in those eras in those places. So, so it was very natural for me to sort of say, oh, you know, maybe I'll write a book about X and, you know, and, and to place, place it in each of these spots. And, but so now having said that, I usually start with a very simple conceit, almost sentence that comes to me for some reason. Uh, so, you know, John Moscow, guy gets trapped in a hotel for a long period of time. Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I'll, I'll go with that for a minute. And, and then, you know, in the case of, of that, I was in a hotel, recognized a person in the lobby in Geneva. That's what prompted the observation. And that night in the hotel, I took the hotel stationery and I rapidly sketched out the basics of a gentleman in Moscow. He's going to be an aristocrat. He's going to start in the 20s. He's going to become a waiter. He's going to, you know, meet an actress. He's going to, his, his nemesis is, a, is another waiter who's prickly. You know, all this stuff kind of bursts out of the first 24 hours of consideration. Wow. And then if that kind of keeps interesting, like I keep thinking about it, I start to sketch that out as a scaffold, but then I really have to dedicate meaningful time to thinking about it. I call it designing. So I spend, you know, a year or two just imagining the book as, as, in as much detail as I can. Chapters, what happens, characters, their backgrounds, events, conversations, the tone, you know, I just keep kind of returning to it, filling some notebooks, uh, when I'm driving, thinking about it, when I'm traveling, thinking about it, when I'm at a bar alone, thinking about it, you know, if I'm waiting for friends. And, and if it's something that has grabbed my attention, then it just keeps getting geometrically more interesting and, and bigger. And eventually I'm like, okay, this is a book now. You know, I'm ready to write this. And then I kind of start gearing up. But uh, so Rules of Civility was the same thing. And in both cases, you know, the idea predated the writing by many years, many, many years. In the case of Rules of Civility, I, it's, it's what you would anticipate if you remember the book in that the idea of the book came to me while going through the Walker Evans photographs of, of portraits on the subway that he had taken with a hidden camera. Yeah. And in this collection of those portraits, it says that uh, he took them in the 38, 39, and 40, but then wouldn't share them until the mid-60s when MoMA convinced him to have an opening. And that's where I was like going through and like, oh, wouldn't it be interesting if someone at the opening recognized a person in the photograph, you know, who was a friend from the 30s. It's 1966, and they're recognizing an old friend from this picture from the end of the Depression. And then I kept going through the pictures like, oh, even better. What if... What if the person recognized the same guy in two pictures, but the guy's undergone such a transformation between picture one and picture two that 
she's the only one in the show who even recognizes that it's the same guy. And that's same kind of thing. I, I was like, sorry with that. That's when I wrote on a piece of paper. Wow. Uh, when I was deciding after the seven year book, what to do next, that one kind <laughs> of came out of the box. I said, yeah, you know, this is a good, this is kind of interesting. It's got a lot of potential. So I began having that same kind of um, imagined process where I began saying, all right, well, I took it to, I was, I was in a restaurant at Balthazar. Oh, you know, well, that makes sense. I was waiting for friends, which is now reopened, by the way. Very exciting. We went there we went Saturday night. It was awesome. But but anyway, so so I was in Balthazar waiting for friends, you know, and I was an hour because I was coming from one thing and going to another. So I, I was like, all right, took that piece of paper and began to think it through. And 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 really again, within 24 hours, I knew all the key elements of, of rules of civility. The and the Anne Grandin's role, Eve, the car crash, the you know, the jewelry, I don't know, all these little things which could fit basically on three pieces of paper. Mm. Uh, just that are, you know, like a scaffolding again of, of, of what happens. And then I start investing time. That took a year to imagine that outward. And then once that process is complete, then I really have a, a long and detailed outline and then I can start writing. So, you know, that's the kind of multi-step process. Gotcha. And my new book, Lincoln Highway, same thing. Same thing. So you do the scaffolding. Does the tone of the first draft sort of carry you through multiple edits or how does that work? That's an interesting question. A tricky one. So you have a premise, I have this sort of moment where I, I commit to sort of imagining it and I can, and I see its potential, mm-hmm. see all these things that are going to happen. And that gives me confidence. And then I get committed to it and I start to sketch out the outline over time and imagining it more fully. And then you're, then you're ready. Early on, to your point, I, I am a person who cares a great deal about tone of voice. Okay. And so, you know, case of Rules of Civility, it's a first person narrative from Katie's perspective. So I have to know a lot about her and what she sounds like in order to turn the engine on. So a part of that year is spent trying to pin down who she is and what she sounds like. And by the way, like if I couldn't, if I couldn't find a compelling voice for her, then the whole thing would probably collapse, you know, and I I rely on different writers are using different elements of craft to different degrees. But, but in my books, tone of voice is a very important one because I'm not, I'm not very interested in plotting and much more interested in the world in which these characters live. And so, so for me, if I get the tone right, you know, and the, and the tone is, is giving us a glimpse of that character's psychology and of their dreams and of their problems and their ambitions, it's kind of all embedded in how they talk and what they see. Well, then I can, then, then I can put them in a tea room by themselves and the writing can be interesting, I think, for the reader, because as they're describing just the tea room, they're creeping through the way in which they choose to describe it. what they see, how they put it, is the sense of who they are. And that starts to become interesting or can be. So, so as I say, if I can get the voice right, uh, it gives me a lot of freedom to write about different things. You know, write six pages in which nothing happens. You know? yeah. and, and But yet somehow, it, by the end of that six pages, hopefully the reader feels closer to the character or to the events or to the time or to the, or the moral conundrums or whatever, but all kind of not without them ever being talked about, just sort of through the, the way in which that person articulates things. Well, even the difference between the narrator in A Gentleman in Moscow and the Count, yes. there's a difference in perspective Correct. in this really interesting kind of way where it's not completely an unbiased perspective that the narrator has of the count. Yes, it's absolutely right. You know, it's one of the most important aspects of that book that kind of is, is not 
it's not apparent necessarily to the reader, which is fun. It's not overt. Yeah. But is, which is that 90% of the book is kind of told by the narrator from the Count's perspective. It's what he would sound like, what he cares about, his foibles, his sense of humor, his comeuppance, you know, it's all kind of his, his sense of taste. You know, that's there driving 90% of it. But then, but as you say, the narrator actually occasionally peeks through with a very different tone in the footnotes or in the introductions to the big chapters, like during in the, after the Second World War, during the purges, or during the addendums where we follow characters outside of the hotel. And in that person sounds very different from the Count. You know, it's someone who is more aware of, more personally exposed to what was challenging in Soviet life. And and so that was a balance that I was trying to strike, is that I wanted to give the Count the full reign to kind of be his whimsical, optimistic self. But I wanted to, you know, keep reminding the reader of what was going on outside to kind of provide some kind of balance. Because I wasn't writing the Gulag Archipelago. It wasn't going to be a book about a guy in you know, prison. And, um, but on the other hand, I, I couldn't, it would be a disaster to write that book without any sort of sense of how difficult lives were for civilians at that time. That intrusion of the sort of slightly more cynical, slightly more sarcastic, slightly more informed narrative voice initially through footnotes was kind of a way for me to try to achieve that balance. That makes sense. And you're right. I had to hear both of those people. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So Rules of Civility comes out. Were you surprised by the reception? Or were you like, I got this? <laughs> well, you know, you're, of course, it's a very pleasant surprise for any writer to have one's books well-received or read. And, yeah, you know, the, the anecdote, I, I, you know, I'll tell you, because it's totally true, is in Keith Richards' life, you know, his great autobiography, he tells a little anecdote about going home to the old hometown, him and Jagger go home and like, maybe, you know, maybe they're in their thirties and they're world famous and, uh, and they're walking through town and, and the, the ladies spill out of the salon, the beauty salon. It's all the women who are his age, their age, who knew them as teenagers. And you know, they're like, Oh, Keith, you know, Keith, Oh my God. You know, can you believe, you know, this, this woman says, Keith, you know, you're world famous rock and roll star. Could you ever have imagined? She says, <laughs> And Keith Richards responds, well, I imagined it all. I just never thought it would happen. Mm. You know, and that's really, you know, I think like, like any young dreaming artist, that's kind of what it is, right? You, you gain confidence in yourself. You believe in yourself. And, you know, it's almost a delusion. Of course, it's delusional, but to some degree. But, but you, do, you know, you're like, I can do this. I think I can do this. I can, I can make a book that people will read that will become broadly read that might stand the test of time and you know and, and again it might be delusional but you you have that you have an you have an access to that feeling and but at the same time you don't necessarily believe it's going to happen so when it does happen it's a little bit like keith you know which is like it doesn't catch you by surprise as, as you've just never considered it happen right it's more like oh my god it actually is happening that's kind of interesting you know wow you know and uh but so yeah it's, which is you know as an artist it's deeply satisfying to have people read your work and and respond to it do you think it is a delusion, though, or do you think you kind of create it mentally first? It's a little bit of both, you know. <laughs> and the delusion's okay, right? I mean, it's like when you're when you're fourteen, you know, fifteen, imagining it, you know, it's a delusion in the sense you have no idea, right? But what's happening kind of over time is you keep writing, dancing, composing, playing guitar, whatever your thing is, feeding the delusion. <laughs> you know, but actually, over time, what's happening is is you're getting better at that thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you're actually you're you're drawing yourself closer to the delusional image you know it's right. within reach kind of in this weird way but you still don't really believe it. And, and i you know i think what happened to me and i i think this happens to many artists i guess i, I don't know or maybe wherever is different but what happened for me is 
eventually you're old enough. You're, you're like, I was, you know, say 18. And now you're reading a novel that's been published by someone who's 25. And you're reading, you know, the great literature of the 19th century. And you're writing yourself. But now you're kind of in a point where you're like, my writing is, is definitely at least as good as so-and-so's. This is as good as, and, and you know, and, I, and, and maybe one day, I, you know, parts of my writing are almost as good as that person I admire. And so, so you begin to sort of, if you gain confidence, right? You still don't believe it, but, but you know, so then what happens is that, and this is what happened to me at Yale, is a writer who you really respect. You know, uh, I was I was in a class with a, with a great uh, novelist and nationalist, Peter Mathis, who was one of the founders of the Parish Review and won many awards and written great fiction and nonfiction and uh, just a person of great stature, personally. And he was visiting Yale. I was in, I got into his class and, you know, it was the kind of the environment where, you know, he'd say, okay, you, you know, you two or three, why don't you read, you read your stories today in class. He, you know, he'd read all the things that are handed in and then he'd say, why don't you read out loud? Then you read out loud. Read out. And there was at one point where I think like I had three stories in a week, in three weeks, you know, that were, he had me read. And then after the class, he's like, hey, can I speak to you for a minute? And he's just like, I don't know you. I don't know who you are. I don't know why you're here. Uh, I don't know what your ambitions are, um, but I, I think you can do this, you know, and, mm -hmm. and that's a rare thing. And I think you should take it very seriously. And I am going to take it very seriously as long as you're in this seminar. And I hope that you will, too, you know, this from this moment forward. And that was that's a big moment because you know? then then that's suddenly like all these sort of, you know, dreams or delusions or, or suspicions that you might be able to do something, you know, and, and you're kind of confident, but not totally confident and occasionally have doubts, you know, then it was suddenly this external person saying, no, this is real. And, uh, and, and that, you know, I think, you know, for any young artist, a moment like that, it can last you like a decade. Yeah. Every time you have doubts for the next decade, you kind of go back to that moment and you see, yes, you know, I, I can do it. And, and Peter's yeah. right. I cannot, it's a challenge in a way when a person like that says that to a young artist, right? It's a challenge saying you have a, a gift and if you don't let me down, you know? And so, so yeah, so, so that's, you're like, oh, okay, right. And, you know, and, uh, and that's, that's very sobering in many ways. But as I say, it, it also gives you um, a lot of support internally for a long time. And by the way, that's as much as you need. You don't need to be published. You don't need your parents to like it. You don't need your friends to know about it. And so that also kind of when you if you're lucky enough to have that moment, it allows you to kind of push all that other crap back again for a period of time and and just keep drilling forward. Yeah, it can fill your gas tank yeah. for a long time. <laughs> Did he read your books? Have you spoken with him since? And does he know? He died some years ago, but uh, okay. but he but yes, he lived. Uh, he lived both to be disappointed with my job <laughs> as an investor. <laughs> Very disappointed. Yeah. Super mad. No Christmas cards. Oh, man. And then, <laughs> then he lived to see me while on the job publish Rules of Civility. And, wow. uh, and you know, and, and, and we had lunch shortly after that book was on the bestseller list. And, and that was, you know, a great, you know, satisfaction, obviously, to me to be able to suggest to him that his confidence in me was not misplaced. You know, that, that it took me a while, but that, that but I, I've kind of round to it and I'm committed to it. So that's a personally satisfying turn of events that could have ended very badly but also such a great reminder of the of the power we hold as individuals as we do start fulfilling our dreams to have that kind of impact on younger creatives who are still trying to find their voice and you could very well be that for somebody at some point and probably already have been and i'm terrible i'm terrible <laughs> really I, I appreciate you reminding me that <laughs> and this is not it's not a, a valid excuse 
because I had my first novel published so late yeah. and I have children, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't feel like I have the time to an energy to take on, you know, uh, you know, younger writers and to sift through the ones and, and advise those. Not that, not that anybody's banging at my door, asking me to do this by the way, but, but right. I, I'm, I'm very careful about my time. I try to avoid reading, you know, manuscripts and galleys and, and things like that because I, you know, I've got to, I've got to catch up. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. So the Count is such an incredible character, but such a contrast from the whole cast of Stability. We've talked a bit about how you set your novels, but when it comes to character, what was that choice about for you of deciding to spend, you know, I guess it was about four years that you spent with that character. How did things kind of change for you in the period between those two books? And why did you decide to, to spend that much time with him? Nothing changed for me. I mean, again, it's like I had, you know, begun reading Russian literature in my late teens, and you know, I'd read a great deal of Russian literature in my life, and then I, then I got interested in Russian culture more broadly. But you know, aside from that, I guess I, I'm interested in throughout Europe, aristocracy and and how it operated and how it overlapped with the Age of Enlightenment thinkers, and you know, where it was tied together and where it came in in, in conflict and. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's so, so I'm, I'm interested in that anyway, you know, yeah. and, and when I, when I was like, oh, I'm going to write a book about a guy who gets trapped in a hotel instantly, I was like, oh, it's got to be Russia. And right after, oh, it's going to be great. It's going to be an aristocrat. You send us to house arrest. Perfect. But so like, again, it wasn't like I didn't have that. And that, I didn't have to think about that at all because, you know, one of the things about the, the 19th and 18th century European aristocracy is that they had more in common with each other country to country than they had with their own country, mm-hmm. country people. Um, and in fact, they all hung out. They, you know, the, the Russian aristocracy spoke French, and they were related in some cases to royalty in the rest of Europe. And they, you know, uh, the, you know, events in in War and Peace at the opening parties. There are people, you know, from Austria and Spain, and you know, in the in the in the party. And, but so, so if you read any of thread of nineteenth-century European literature, you're 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 seeing that person, for good or bad, because that person is cropping up in. You know, the writers of uh, in England, persons cropping up in the writers of the French, you know, not in all their books, but occasionally. And so certainly, you know, in the British countryside, you mm-hmm. know, and so, so, so as I say, that that's sort of a big, so this category of people. Now, the personality of the Count's very different. He's not based on anybody, and he's certainly different than many aristocrats depicted in literature. Well, that's what was so nice about him is that it wasn't a frivolous character. And, and partly because he has to learn to be more serious over time yeah. a little bit more frivolous at the beginning than he is at the end and that's what i think was great about him but but as i say knowing picking account on an history was very easy because i know that, that by, by picking him you get someone who uh, was exposed to literature exposed to mm-hmm. classical music exposed to the finer things in life exposed to manners yeah and so literally again on that first night i was like oh, he's gonna get bored he's gonna get frustrated and he's gonna want to get a job he's gonna, you know and that's like oh of course you can become a waiter because an aristocrat is the perfect waiter because he speaks different languages or she doesn't you know knows the cuisine knows the wine you know knows the mannerisms of of the well-to-do and you know or of the statesman whatever so 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 as i say it it very quickly kind of falls into place like a piece of a puzzle yeah and then and then going back to the tone of voice thing it's a big advantage because to write in sort of a 19th century aristocratic style i i know i can deliver that and in a way that the reader can experience it very fully, rather than say, you know, a Russian tradesman, you know, right, right. you know, I mean, which is going to be a very different thing, and you know, and, and I can do a tradesman maybe in, in from Chicago, but probably not from Moscow, you know. So anyway, so so you're some of it's cheating too in that sense. Cool. 
I have now heard rumors about both of your novels being turned into TV projects. Yeah. What's the situation there right now? The rumors is still a very good classification. You know? <laughs> uh, both both are in development, you know, and so okay. neither has a finished script, neither has a production schedule, neither has a green lighted budget. Okay. Um, but both are still in the hands of Hollywood figures who are trying to make them happen. You know, and I think they, they I think they will happen. But it, that's such a weird world, you know. Right. You can have something that's turned into, you know, a television miniseries in eighteen months, yeah. And you can have something that, after seven years, trades hands, yeah. You know, yeah. Well, the, the idea of of Kenneth Branagh playing the Count makes me very excited. Yeah, and he's still signed on to that. So I mean, that's still. Uh, we hope that's still what's going to happen. Great. I have a wish list for for Anna too, but we'll see what happens with that. <laughs> All right, new novel, The Lincoln Highway. Tell me everything I'm allowed to know. So, you know, same kind of weird pattern of behavior on my part, you know, small premise that I dwelt on and began to imagine outward. In this case, the premise was, and the difference here is I remember where I was when I had the idea for rules. I remember where I was when I had the idea for Gentleman Moscow. I have no idea where I was when I had the idea for Lincoln Highway. Really? And it's the most recent. Yeah, but it was, it was 10, it was more than 10 years ago. Oh, okay. And so, uh, what happens is, is and I, I can tell you this, this much, you know, is what you read on the back of the, the galley when it comes out. But it is, um, the book is about three 18-year-old boys and an eight-year-old boy who go from Nebraska to New York City in 1954. And the whole story lasts 10 days. But the setup, as it were, the, the conceit, is that before the book begins, our hero, uh, Emmett, someone picks a fight uh, with him at the county fair. He punches the guy. The guy falls back, hits his head, and dies. So Emmett is sentenced as a minor, as a minor to kind of a work farm in, Nebraska, in Kansas, where you, know, you go and do farming for 18 months and then you're done. And um, that's happened beforehand. And the book opens with the warden driving him home to Nebraska. And uh, in the meantime, his mother is long gone. His father has died in the interim. So he's gotten a little bit of an early release. His father's farm has gone bankrupt. Family farm has gone bankrupt. And he's got an eight-year-old brother. So the warden basically says, you know, listen, um, what happened to you was a fluke. You're a good person. You've paid your debt to society. So I hope that, you know, when you get home that you'll, you know, you'll get your brother and you'll start your life anew and uh, you deserve to. And, and, you know, Emma says, yeah, that's, that is absolutely my intention. And uh, his intention is to get his brother and to head West because the farm's gone anyway. And uh, what ends up happening is that uh, when the warden drives away, it turns out that two other people from the work farm had hidden in the trunk of the warden's car, uh, you know, friends of the main character. And they've got a totally different plan and cause a lot of trouble. And so the 10 days sort of starts there. So as I say, the, the image for me was guy going home from work farm and the warden's car gets out and it turns out there are two guys in the trunk of the car. Uh, I don't know when or why I had that image, but again, it kind of nagged at me. At a certain point, you know, I started thinking more about it. And, and, and I, you know, I've got, I don't know, maybe, uh, I don't exaggerate. Maybe I've got, you know, 50 ideas like this. Yeah. And some of them I have a page of notes on. And some of them I have 30 pages of notes on. So when, I, when, when General Moscow is put to bed and it's time to start thinking about what to do next, I'm kind of looking over this landscape of different ideas. And, and obviously what kind of rises to the top are those things which have, for whatever reason, caught my attention with such frequency that, over the years, I've added and added and added and added to the notes and to the sort of the visual picture of the whole story. And that's what happened here. You know, by the time, you know, uh, when General Moscow was down, I think I was choosing between two different things and, and 
the events of the Lincoln Highway were largely in place in my head, you know, but I still spent like a year finishing that process of imagining before I started writing. You told Entertainment Weekly that you hope this novel will provide readers with a very different reading experience from your first two. What did you mean by that? Yeah, and, and I like to think that General Moscow is very different from Rules of Civility in, in its experience of how that gets read. But uh, so, I mean, for, for one thing, uh, the 10 days is very different. You know, if mm-hmm. you have a narrative that spans 30 years, like the Count's narrative, you're, you're aging, the country's changing, you're, you're going from, you know, uh, losing your, your grandma, and then you have suddenly a young girl you're, who you're over, you know, overseeing her life, and, and she's aging, you know. So, so the span of time really changes Mm-hmm. the emotional and relationship content of a book meaningfully, right? So 10 days, you don't have that. The characters are not going to mature over a long period of time. They've got 10 days to change, you know? But, um, <laughs> yeah. but they also, you know, there's America in the 50s and, and the, you know, the you know, main character is from a farm in Nebraska in the 50s. And so his tone of voice and how he thinks and talks is, is very, very different from Katie's of the counts. And, and, but you also hear from other characters. And uh, the, the, one of the kids in the trunk is a kid who kind of grew up in a rougher part of New York City, you know, in the 40s. And so he kind mm-hmm. of, the two of them are, are very different in terms yeah. of their concerns, their personalities, their voices, and, and yet are, are kind of friends and working together in some weird way. And so, and I think there are eight different perspectives in this book. Those two guys are the primary ones, but you keep, you hear from other people. So that's a different reading experience. It's not only through the eyes of the, of the, of the principal and the way that the first two books are. You know, here, it's, it's a much more level playing field. So I don't know. But when you, but when you, when you do change setting and you change time period and you change uh, circumstances, I, you know, not, not all writers feel this way, but I do. I feel like you have to retool every aspect of your craft. So the way you use metaphor should be totally different. The way you use illusions should be totally different. The, the pace of the narrative, the tone of the, the sound of the sentences needs to change. The, and, you know, going back to that thing, the, the way the personality comes through the language changes the language dramatically. So that's part of why I do it. I like to make the shift because it forces me to, to write in a different way. Mm. When does that come out? October 5th. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited. Excellent. Okay. I'm clearing that week for myself. <laughs> There is a lovely list of your favorite things on Goodreads. It includes (laughs) rock and roll on vinyl, 70s cop shows, card games, the wee hours. It also includes obsolete accessories. Would you please elaborate on that? Yeah, I'll show you. Oh, yeah, yeah, here's one. Here's one. Hold on. So you see this. I see a spade. Lovely little silver thing. Well, this thing in the middle is a dial. And so, you, <gasps> see that, you know, there's a diamond and, you know, and this is, uh, you know, there you go. That says no Trump. So, so this would be on a bridge table. Once the bidding was complete, you would turn the dial so that everybody at the table could be reminded of who Trump was, but also could any observer who had approached. <laughs> you know, this is a very obsolete, but beautifully made little thing. You know? Very cool. Can you tell me about the 10th anniversary gift you gave your wife? The 10th anniversary. The tin top hat. Yeah, okay, hold on. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so fun. What's you talking about? The background on this is, this is called a whimsy. And so you're right, that the 10th anniversary, the tradition was you would give your spouse a gift of tin. And, you know, you know by, you know, 1900, no, tin wasn't being used to make anything. And so uh, the, the tin makers 
or the people who you know worked in, in, in metal came up with this notion of in of creating objects out of tin that were not supposed to be made out of tin mm. specifically to be given as a 10th anniversary gift and those are called whimsies wow so you have all kinds of you know boots made out of tin or uh you know uh uh you know whatever you, anything you can imagine you know uh flowers made out of tin but things that were were designed as whimsy so then then you know some of this this is different this <laughs> the tiny version <laughs> so this is uh a what do you call it uh, you know it's like a, a piggy bank it's a teeny little piggy bank and so you know but i was like yeah that's good I'm gonna, so, anyway, so yes I, I like both of those things are you gonna insert the idea of whimsies into a book at some point that's a good question <laughs> you know I, I don't have it here on, on my it's downstairs downstairs i have an object which again is silver it's this tall and what it is is it's got a little window and a dial and you turn the dial and, and little ivory cards flip past and on each card is a cocktail recipe so it'll and it's in alphabetical order you know it's from the 20s so it's you know say you know whatever manhattan you know Mar not margarita but whatever it's probably didn't have that then by the way you get the picture so and it's you know 50 cocktail recipes you go click 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 and it's and it's you know it's it's like a rolodex right it's like a teeny little silver rolodex with a window and so you can go all the way through and keep going around and um so that actually appears in rules of civility so the first time that katie goes to tinker and eve's apartment katie uh, eve is asleep and she's kind of uh, going through the apartment looking at things uh by herself and she goes to make a little bit more of a drink and she sees that on the shelf now i say that i know that was in the first draft i think it's still in there i, I feel like it's ringing a bell but i might have to go check I have to go back and check i'm pretty sure <laughs> so yeah so occasionally these things do pop up in the books yes nice maybe the whims next you must you must what are your thoughts on uh on creating works that a reader is both entertained and educated by and i guess the concept of a whimsy sort of plays into this as well yeah, that's that's an interesting way of putting it so, so my, my bigger picture on this is that I'm interested in, 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 I'm trying to write literature for better or worse, and whether I succeed or fail is irrelevant, but that's what my ambition is to write literature. And, and literature means to create a, a, a work of narrative that is rich enough that it allows different people from different walks of life to approach the narrative, be entertained by it, and discover different things, to walk away with different impressions, to be uh, affected by different aspects of the book. And uh, by different images in it, by different sentiments, by different characters, and that, that people of different races and ages can experience it in that way. And you, the same person can read the book when they're 20, 40, 60, and enjoy it each time, but have a very different impression of what it's about. That's the ambition. The novel at its best is a composition of thousands of little elements, words, again, allusions, allegories, structural aspects, dialogue, you know, settings and objects, you know, memories. You know, there are all these uh, thousands of little things in there which are working in harmony, the book has done well. But in some ways, it can be quite mysterious. The different aspects of them can accumulate to bring a certain impression to a reader, right? And, and a different reader can walk away with a very different impression by actually having a, a different experience to those components, reassemble those components in a, in a different way for them. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. At any rate, that's, that's what I'm very interested in. And now, should that entertain as well as inform? And I, you know, I think the answer to that question is yes. I think I was raised in um, a generation that believed that serious art should not be made with the customer in mind. And, and you know, at any time you took consideration of the reader or the viewer or the listener, you know, you were you were compromising the quality of the work, and and so you should just you know barrel ahead and 
and, and you know, in retrospect, and I believe that totally as a 20 year old at Yale or whatever, but in retrospect, you know, that was a crazy notion, you know, which really dominated my time without question. Like if you have to talk to any of my peers who, you know, were trained in the arts kind of at any, you know, any of these, any institutions that was kind of in their mind, you know, the, the, the height was James Joyce. And by the way, Finnegan's Wake is the best of a lot because nobody can read it. You know, like, what? You know? So, but, uh, you know, so uh, I think that in retrospect, almost all great art for the last half a millennium has been made with, with the audience in mind. Mm. Leonardo da Vinci painted with the audience and so did Michelangelo. They painted with the audience in mind and Tolstoy and Dickens wrote with the audience in mind and, and Mozart composed with the audience in mind. And there's nothing, there's nothing bad about that. It depends on how you approach it. Right. So mm -hmm. if you're trying to create art to please the audience and ring a cash register, that will probably not work, you know, or, or to it won't work. It won't create a work of art that has the richness I'm talking. About. But if, you, if you're trying to create a rich work and you ask yourself at a certain point, is, is this going to interest the reader? You know, and the answer is no, then you have more work to do because some aspect of it needs to be accessible and universal for the different readers to come to it and to bother to go on. Right. You know, I mean, you're asking somebody to buy it and to spend their time and to turn the pages and and you owe it to them to edit your work in such a way that it has the richness, but it isn't boring, cliche, you know, obscure, you know, or, or dismissive. It shouldn't be any of those things, you know. And uh, so at any rate, so, so, yeah, I, I kind of to wrap this up, I, the way I think of it is I try to write my first draft for myself with nobody in mind, but then I try to edit for a reader, whoever that is you know, where I then put myself through the task of asking myself for this universal reader is, is this, does this chapter earn its keep? Mm -hmm. Could it be shorter? Could it be more direct? Could it be more interesting? You know? And I got to say too, by the way, that, that it's not, in many cases, the changes that get made as I go through that process are not about making the book more accessible. It's often about making it less so because it's saying, you know what, the reader doesn't need this character to explain over this long paragraph what they're feeling. All they need is that last sentence. And that's me doing a service to the reader and making the book better, but also making it more challenging in a way. And giving them more credit. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, that's a really beautiful way to wrap up. Thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're extremely busy, very excited for the new book and really appreciate it. Well, it's great to see you. Great to see you too. I'm trying, I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to come to Canada in the spring or something like that. I won't be able to come when the book comes out, but you know, I think I'm going to come to Canada in the spring, but I'll, I'll certainly... We'll alert you. Absolutely. Please do. We'll, we'll end up in the same city again at some point. I'm sure of it. Thanks, Alex. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Bye. And that, beautiful people, concludes this episode of The Inspirati. I hope you picked up some inspiration to take into your day. Please rate, review, subscribe, and leave a comment if you're enjoying these conversations. You can follow The Inspirati on Instagram or find me at alex.merrill. Stay inspired and keep creating. The world needs it more than ever. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, 
a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.